are uh, working our way through Matthew still. We're getting close. Shouldn't be like excited to be done with something that's the Bible, but I'm excited to be done with Matthew and to move on to something else. Um, tonight we're going to be in chapter five, 25, not chapter 5, chapter 25 and a little bit of 24 as well. So you can open up there if you got your Bible with you. This is essentially like a part two to the teaching I did uh, two weeks ago on Matthew 24, which that chapter is commonly considered like to be about the end times, which it partially is, but it mostly deals with Jesus warning the disciples and the people like of that age that uh, Jerusalem and their temple was soon to be destroyed. And Jesus uses apocalyptic language from these different spots in the Old Testament to describe this terrible thing that was about to happen to Israel. And all that language that's apocalyptic and end timesy sounds like Jesus is talking about the end times, but he's primarily talking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen and did in 70 AD. But the second half of chapter 24, Jesus does talk about the end of the age is the way that they describe it. Um, It's about his return or his second coming. And he says two things about it in 24. One, that only the Father knows when it's happening. No one else knows, not even Jesus. And two, because we don't know, uh, how we live matters. It actually matters as we wait for that. Um, Jesus doesn't give the signs for predicting when the end will be. In fact, he discourages us from trying to figure that out or from believing people that say that they've figured it out. Um, He says, again, no one knows when the day is coming except the Father. Um, And so with that in mind, um, in the very end of chapter 24, in the first half of uh, chapter 25, Jesus gives us four stories, four images or metaphors, um, maybe parables of sorts, to help us understand like how we should consider ourselves, how we should live waiting for Jesus to come back. So that's the end of 24 and 25, that's what that's about. Um, But before we read those, I think our culture has its own ways of encouraging us to live in light of the end of the world. Like obviously the end in the mind of different people, depending on who you ask, means something different than maybe what Jesus has in mind, but everyone acknowledges that death is coming for everybody. (laughs) Whether that means you're headed into like non-existence or some kind of reincarnation. um, People have advice for how you live now based on what your end is and when that is coming. The first one that comes to my mind is YOLO. Uh, Just to flash back to 2010, um, people like to say this before they do something stupid or risky. The implication being that we we don't get to make like a safe run at life and then come back and do again to make some more like bolder or riskier decisions in the next run. We live once and so go big before you go home. I just made up another one. My new favorite one that I heard, and I think it's not new, I think it comes from an older song, so maybe someone here will know if it is from a song, in fact, but uh, I heard it on a a cooking channel on YouTube where this guy, like right before he puts in like a large amount of something that maybe you're not supposed to have large amounts of, uh, like a ton of butter or cheese or something, he's like, all right, two sticks of butter in here, we're here for a good time, not a long time. You guys heard that one before? Similar to YOLO, but different. We don't have forever, so make it a good time. Add the extra butter or whatever you like. Um, I'm sure there are dozens, dozens and dozens of other sayings and adages that kind of capture a view on like how we live based on the fact that we're not gonna live forever and how we live based on what's coming. There's even like false Christian ones that we have. I thought of one, like the, the phrase, it's all gonna burn, is something that Christians kind of say to each other. I've heard it to justify like, you know, uh, uh, our like 
our earthly possessions, like they, they don't matter, they're all gonna burn, so whatever, or sometimes it's justified to not care about the earth at all, it's all gonna burn. These are like, some view of the end justifies how we live now. Um, most people, maybe I, sh- maybe I could say everyone, we have the sense, we know, that the life that we experience now has a very meaningful and a decisive stopping point. And because of that, it affects how we live. Whether a person thinks there's nothing after this life, um, therefore you should have fun now, or whether a person thinks there could be something after, we can't know, so maybe generally kind of sort of try to be a good person, whatever that means, or whether a person believes in Jesus and believes he is returning to establish his kingdom, humans know that our end is coming and it changes how we live now, what we do, what we don't do, knowing that the end is coming. And so... Tonight, we have four little short stories or metaphors that Jesus uses to instruct those who call him Lord on how we live in light of the fact that there's an end, that we are going to die, but also that Jesus is going to return. There's two short ones at the end of chapter 24 and two medium ones in chapter 25, and we're gonna read them. Um, I'm gonna kind of briefly go over each of them, and then at the end, we'll kind of circle back and talk about how it affects uh, what we do in this life. So we're going to look first at chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So this is the first short little image that is designed to show us um, you know, how we should consider ourselves in light of Jesus' return. And this image is of a homeowner who has advanced knowledge that someone is gonna break into their house. Now imagine if this guy knew that someone was gonna break in, say around 2 a.m., he probably wouldn't like fall asleep around midnight, just like, I'm gonna catch a couple hours of sleep really quick. He'd probably stay awake and alert. Um, your head would be on a swivel, you'd be ready for this, you'd you know, have your eyes and your ears tuned in for noises to know what was coming. You'd probably also call the police or go stay with a friend, but that's not what happens here. So that's the first image, waiting for a break-in and we're instructed to be ready. Ready as if someone was about to break into your house. Next story, next section, verse 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the second story or metaphor that we get. One servant um, put in charge of the other servants of the house to feed them and take care of them. The faithful version of this servant, the wise one, is the one who is doing this job and he's doing it well. He's taking care of the people he's supposed to take care of. Um, And because he's doing his job well, and he's doing it when the master returns, his master rewards him for it. Um, It's kind of like when you're a kid and you hear the garage door open because you're like, you know, your parents getting home, but you had a chore that you were supposed to do by the time they got home, so you scramble and you start doing it, just like that. That happens to me sometimes as an adult when my wife has told me something to do. I'm ashamed to admit it. Um, 
The unfaithful, the unwise servant, is the one who is not only not doing the job that the master asked him to, but he's mistreating those who he was supposed to be taking care of. He's getting drunk on the job, not doing what was asked of him, and he's in a lot of trouble when the master returns. Um, he finds him useless and disobedient. And so the encouragement here is to um, not only to be ready for the master's return, but to make yourself ready by being about what you were supposed to be doing, by doing the job that was assigned to you. Okay, those are the first two. The next one, chapter 25. We're gonna read all of verses one through 13 just to get the whole story in our minds. Remember that the chapter divisions that we have, they're not inspired, they were not there originally, so like this is supposed to flow right out of what we just read, and it, it makes sense. <clears throat> At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. It's funny that it's translated virgins. Think bridesmaids. This is a wedding section. They probably were virgins, but it's also bridesmaids. Uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, aka just the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So I did not know I've read this story lots, and I did not understand it until I <laughs> dug into it a little bit this week. Um, you kind of get the, the general gist of what's happening just from context, but um, just for fun, let's get to know it a little bit. So a wedding and around this time was a long celebration, maybe, maybe as long as a week, maybe longer. Um, so what would happen, I think, I read conflicting stories from these different scholars, so no one really knows what an ancient first century wedding was like, I guess. But what would happen, I think, is that the bridesmaids, what the scriptures call virgins, would wait with the bride at her house for the groom. Um, the groom was probably being like escorted by his friends and his family. So the bridesmaids would wait with the bride. This would often, often happen in the evening. And so they would have some type of torch or lamp ready to light, I'm assuming to help bring the groom kind of like from the town gate like to the, find their house in the dark. So they'd have some type of torch or lamp ready to welcome the groom to his wedding ceremony. And then there would be this procession from the bride's house to the groom's house where the marriage feast and banquet would take place. So in our story that Jesus is telling, the bridesmaids are waiting for the groom to arrive and to take his bride. It's getting late, it's getting dark. Some were smart, brought extra oil so that their torches could stay lit. Um, they wait a while, it takes a while for the groom to get there. They got sleepy, they fall asleep. And then, I don't know, the town crier alerts them like, hey, the groom's here, go meet him. The bridesmaids with no oil didn't have what they needed to light their torches or their lamps, and so they asked the wise ones for the oil, and they said, if we give you our oil, then all of our lamps or torches are gonna go out, so that's not gonna work. 
So the unwise ones are frantic and they go to find a place to buy oil, but it's like the middle of the night or something. They're not gonna be able to find it. While they're gone, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to make up for the lack of preparedness. And while they're gone, the groom arrives and the bridesmaids with the lit lamps proceed with the groom to the marriage banquet and the door is shut. And then when they finally get back, they ask to get in. Um, and the master of the ceremony or the groom, some, someone says, I don't even know who you are. So the instruction is not only to keep watch, like we read in the last couple stories, but to be prepared, to be wisely prepared or ready for the arrival, and this story is of the groom, um, but to be wisely prepared for the arrival of Jesus. And we're going to, more on that in a little bit. Um, but the next story will shed even more light on how we are to be ready for Jesus' return. Verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are just funny. I find them very interesting stories that are confusing to make sense of and have very harsh um, punishments for the people that do the wrong thing. Uh, in this final metaphor, Jesus gives us, um, we have a master and three servants. The master's going on a trip and leaves each of his servants with a certain amount of money or talents, if we're reading an older translation. Um, he gives five to the first. It's somewhere around $5,000 or $1,000 per talent or so. He gives five to the first, two to the second, and one to the third. The master leaves, and that first servant takes that five and turns it into 10. 
The second servant took his two and turned it into four. And then the third one took that one talent's worth of money and he buried it in the ground for safekeeping. So there were no banks. We read the word banker in here, but it's not banks like we have them today um, that you could just kind of store your money in to keep it safe. Um, So that's why he buried it in the ground. Um, The master returns. The first two servants show him what they've done with what he gave them. Um, and he's proud of them. He says, well done, my good and faithful servants. Um, he said they've been faithful with what he gave them and now they're gonna have even more entrusted to them. But then he comes to the third servant and it turned out the third servant uh, didn't know the master. That's the biggest problem in this story and it applies to us as well. This third servant didn't know the master. He thought the master was a harsh and greedy man who was solely concerned with like sending money out into the world and getting return on investment back. Like he was interested in that, but he thought that he was that and a harsh man or a greedy man. Um, that's what he talks about when it says, you know, harvesting in fields that you haven't sown in, that sort of thing. Um, so basically the third servant knew, he knew he likes for people to make him money. Um, he knew what his master wanted, but he was afraid afraid of failing, of, of trying something, trying to make money for his master, afraid that if he failed that the master would be angry with him. Um, so he does nothing with it. He buries it thinking, I can't lose this, I gotta just put it, put it away and I'll give it back to him when he gets back. But it turns out the master was more angry that he didn't even try. He didn't even try anything. So when, his, when, he, when the master returned, he's like, you, you knew what I was like. You said it yourself. So why didn't you just, why didn't you at least give it? It's probably money changers when it says bankers. Why wouldn't you at least give it to the money changers and we could have got some interest back on that one that I gave you? And so he takes what he had given to that third servant and he gives it to the others. And then he casts the wicked and lazy servant out of, out of the house and into darkness. So we have four stories, um, these images that Jesus has given us to like think about um, what do we do? How do we consider ourselves as Jesus followers as we wait for him to return? And they are cryptic. They are, they are weird stories. When you, when you think about such an important question of like how should we live? Jesus is coming back. And then you're like, what do I do with these stories? This is pretty weird. Um, so Jesus has, says, um, he has these four stories, and then in each of them, he kind of like pops out of the story to give like a, in real time instruction to the disciples that are listening at the time, and then instructions to us too. And so I'm going to pick those out, um, and we'll kind of get a theme for what Jesus wants for us. In chapter 24, 42, he says, "Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come." And then again in verse 44, he says, "So you also." must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And again, in chapter 25, verse 13, at the end of the story of the the, the wedding, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And then finally, it's a little different, but in chapter 25, verse 29, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So those are like the statements that Jesus makes that aren't telling the story. He's stepping outside of the story and talking to his disciples, giving them some information that they need, giving us 
some information that we, meet, that we need. And so, it seems to me that what Jesus wants for his disciples is to be watchful, ready, and active. So in each of those stories, we have examples of people who did the opposite of these things, and they wound up being outside of relationship with the master. So there were those who were not watchful, but they were distracted. Um, there were people who were not ready or prepared. And then there was this guy at the end who was passive or inactive and proved to not be known by their master, all these people. So watchful, ready, and active are kind of the three thoughts that I have after, after reading these. And I was trying to think of another, <clears throat> I thought of another analogy that was helpful for me, and if it's not helpful for you, then it'll be a waste of time that I wrote it. So um, imagine you're getting ready to leave on like a long international trip. And you need to like, you need to pay attention to the time because you've got to get to the airport extra early, get up, be on time for your flight. You also have to pack um, probably a big suitcase, lots of things. Um, but you also, you want your house to not be a disaster when you get back. Because sometimes that happens when you're packing, you're just throwing stuff everywhere and your house is crazy. Maybe you've got a house sitter that's going to come and watch. So you're trying to leave your house in order um, before you leave so that it's not messed up when you get back. Missing any one of those steps would not be good. Uh, if you aren't paying attention, if you aren't being watchful at the time, you can miss your flight. If you don't pack, you won't have what you need when it's time to go. Um, and if you pack your bag in a frenzy and then just like sit and stare at your watch, waiting for the time to leave, your house is just gonna be left undone and a mess when you get back. I think Jesus wants us to be aware of the time watchful for his return, knowing that it could be at any moment. He's made this point kind of on repeat in chapter 24 and 25. And then I think he also wants us to be ready, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, um, prepared for him. The, the bridesmaids' point of that story is they were unprepared. They didn't have what they needed. <clears throat> ready so that we're not scrambling to pack our things, so to speak. And then finally, he wants us to be active in the meantime. He doesn't want us to just sit and wait. He's given us time and abilities, and he wants us to do something with the, the days that we have. So the first part is, is being watchful. I think in the context of these stories, being watchful simply means to um, be alert, to be aware of the fact that Jesus could come back at any time. So I'm beginning to think that it probably should be part of our, like, our daily existence as Jesus followers um, to acknowledge that this day could be our last, that, that Jesus could return. Um, and it's not in a way that should scare us, but it's in a way that should um, drive us to be excited for his return and to, and to be active working for him and um, to honor his name. Um, the opposite of being watchful, I think, is being distracted, having our heads buried like just in the day-to-day -day of life that we forget that this version of life that we're living now is not the final version. Um, I think not being watchful and alert also includes like um, whatever we use to numb out and to like dull our senses of in reality, um, to numb us to reality, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs or excessive amounts of social media or TV, all of these dull our awareness of reality, make us feel a little bit out of touch um, and not alert. And that is like, the paradigm that Jesus wants for us, and if you read Paul, 
um, in the New Testament letters, for sure it is what he encourages, encourages the church to be, is watchful and alert and ready. This doesn't mean that we can't rest. We can and we must do that. It just means, again, that our, our paradigm, our grid for thinking about our life as we wait for Jesus is not sit back, relax, and just kind of do whatever. It's be alert. He's coming soon. We want to be ready. So in addition to being watchful, we'll be ready, which it's like weird. We don't have a bag to pack. Like we don't have like a go bag to like get ready to go for when Jesus comes here. At least I don't have one. Maybe you do, but... Um, I think what it means to be ready in the context of these stories is to truly, actually know Jesus, to be in relationship with him. The answer that's given um, to those in these stories that ended up being separated from the master in the stories, whether they're cast into darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth or not going to the wedding, the response was that he never knew them. And so if we're gonna be ready we need to know and follow Jesus as our Savior and our King, our Master. We don't have to pack a bag. We don't have to memorize the Bible or get ducks in a row. We just need to stay connected to Jesus. And there's so many ways to do that, and we um, don't have time to get into all of them. We just stay connected to him through our relationship with his Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, praying and through communion, the Lord's Supper, through participation in the local church, studying scripture, um, living life in a rhythm, an intentional rhythm of grace where we sin and we repent and we ask for help and we grow and we mature and we just on that cycle repeatedly. That is life with Jesus and we need to stay connected to him to actually know him. I think that's what it means to be ready. So as we wait for Jesus, we're watchful, we're ready and also should be active. Um, this very clearly to me does not mean that we need to be perfect, that we need a, a one-to-one like return on investment ratio like these guys had in the story. Um, and I don't think it means that we need to be busy or overexert ourselves striving for something from God, certainly not striving for his approval. Why would we strive for something that he's already given to his children? So we're not earning anything by being active. We're being faithful and obedient. So Jesus has given us quite literally talents um, abilities, resources, and if you're alive now, time. While we still have breath in us, we have time yet to be about God's work that he has for us. <clears throat> I think that last parable is interesting. Jesus' point was that the unfaithful servant <clears throat> should have done something with what he gave him. He didn't lose the money. He was mad that he didn't even try to do something with it. He gave it for a reason, and then the dude did nothing with it. It makes me think about this quote from a seminary professor of mine who said uh, <clears throat> about church. He said, attempting the good is more important than avoiding mistakes or appearing faultless. And I don't know about you, but uh, to an exhausting extent, it feels like the good works that we might do today feel like they're under a microscope. Like, you can't help that homeless person in this way because it actually does more harm than good, or you can't support this organization because they support this other cause, which is bad. Um, and if you're not swayed by the opinions of others in that way, maybe you're swayed by, like I am, like by your own cynicism and skepticism. Like, is this actually gonna help? Is this thing really worth it? The point is, 
There's no perfect way for us to be about the Lord's work, but we can't do nothing. We have time and we have talents. God ordained days and abilities and resources to do something for him, for his kingdom. And that is a way that we can prove to be Jesus' followers is by doing good in this world while we wait for him. And I don't know that we can afford to be afraid of accidentally doing a bad thing. Jesus is not a harsh master, not a hard man. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, we read in Matthew. He is kind and gentle and full of grace and he expects us to get to work, to do so filled up with the love and grace that he has for us, but to work nonetheless. I imagine like myself telling uh, my youngest boy, Scout, who was three, um, to dig a trench in my backyard. I want to get a hot tub someday, so I got to build, dig a trench, run power out there. So imagine if I asked Scout to dig a trench for me, like 20 feet, I don't know. I give him a day, and I give him a shovel. It's his time and his talent. Um, get to work, buddy. Dig me a trench. As his dad, I know what he can and can't do. Actually, I feel like he could do a pretty good job, but um, I'm not going to expect a workable trench from my three-year-old or anything resembling a trench at all. I just want him to demonstrate his willingness to obey dad and to get to work a little bit. Um, I don't care how much is done. He might dig up like a pile of dirt and say, dad, I did it. There's your trench right there. And I would say, well done, buddy. You did great. And yeah, there's a lot more work to be done. Um, I wouldn't say you didn't really do it, Scout. You kind of you, that was that's a that's a little um, hole that you dug, not a trench, buddy. I wish you would have done it right. I'm going to say I'm proud of you. Thanks for helping me with this. I'm going to take it from here and finish it. Um, I kind of think we're three-year-olds digging trenches, which doesn't mean that it's not meaningful, but um, we do have work to do that our dad has asked us to do. Um, I want to close with this poem called A Future Not Our Own by an Archbishop, Oscar Romero. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, 
But that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Um, we are headed toward a sure and true future, the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom. We don't know when, but he wants us to be alert, watchful, and ready for him, and active doing the work with the resources that he's given us. And so I just want to ask you to reflect a little bit. Um, are you watchful? Is his return on your radar? I'll just say for myself, no. That's some, that is the last thing on my mind. I was reading this, I was like, dang, I am none of these things. Are you ready? Are you cultivating relationship with Jesus? Will he say, I know you? And then, man, what does Jesus have for you to do in this life? Um, I'm pretty sure that every single one of us in this room has been trained, and I don't, I don't mean to say this as a only negative thing. We've been trained to expect the guy here to tell us what um, the Lord wants you to do. <laughs> like, what good works does the Lord have for you? And, and we organize an event, and we have a sign-up, and you gotta sign up for it, and you come to the thing, and then you do it. And I'm sure that the Lord has lots of that for Valley Church. But um, if we never did that, if all that we did was the things that the Lord was asking you to do, where you, you look inward and you pray and you think, Lord, what do you have for me to do? What, how do you want me to be active? If that's all that happened, that would be a major success and a, and a huge deal. And so what does Jesus have for you to do this week or this month or this year or in the next 30 years? Are you like me and a little um, cynical, maybe? Skeptical about whether or not you could or should partner with this person or this team or whether or not the work would actually work. Maybe it's time for us to set that aside and to do something that we know is incomplete and not perfect, but still maybe what the Lord wants us to do. Let's pray. Jesus, it is kind of a, you know, unnerving that you didn't give us a date and you just keep telling us to just be watchful. We don't know when, but we hear you. Not even you knew when. It's not for us to know, but you haven't left us in the dark and you haven't left us without some stuff to think through. So would you help us to be a church that is watchful and alert and ready and active with the things that you have for us to do in this life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.